This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, Dr. Anthony Fauci became a household name during the COVID-19 pandemic, but he spent most of his life in public service. Now, after more than five decades, he's retiring. He joins us for a look back at his career. Then, China is named as the biggest threat to the U.S. in the annual National Defense Strategy. How the Pentagon plans to respond and the other countries on its radar. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gerges. After 54 years of public service, Dr. Anthony Fauci is set to retire. He started his career at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases as a clinical associate and eventually became the director. He now serves as the president's chief medical advisor. Dr. Fauci, welcome to the program. Thank you. Good to be with you. You know, I want to start with the early part of your career, which was focused on HIV AIDS research, and it's something that you continue to study. How did the HIV AIDS epidemic shape your career? Well, it was really the, the major pillar of my career, uh, both from my own personal research, which I have now been studying for 41 plus years from the very first weeks and months that we recognized we were dealing with a new disease. I was involved in another area of research. And as soon as I heard about and then finally took care of the first group of individuals in the fall of 1981 and have been doing so ever since, I completely changed the direction of my career to focus intensively on, at the time, this new mysterious disease that didn't have a name yet. We're calling it gay-related immunodeficiency, a completely inappropriate name. And we had no etiology agent of it yet, because that wasn't discovered till 1983, 1984. And that really started me on the road of not only my scientific pursuit of emerging infectious diseases, but a few years later, I took over as the director of the Institute in 1984, as you mentioned. And I made it a major effort to put together an AIDS program where we not only did research intensively on AIDS, but we funded investigators throughout many, many medical centers throughout the country and even the world, which ultimately led to the development of drugs, which actually turned out to be life-saving drugs and turned around the clinical course of and, HIV AIDS, and, and that really has permeated my entire career. And, and speaking of funding, you are one of the principal architects of PEPFAR, which is the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. That was established in 2003. What measurable, measurable impact do you think that ultimately had? Well, PEPFAR is, I think, without anybody arguing with this because it's so clear, clearly one of the, if not the most transforming and impactful global health program ever initiated by any country, including the United States, because what it did, and as you mentioned, um, well, President George W. Bush 
gave me the great honor of tasking me with putting together with others this program, which ultimately delivered care, treatment, and prevention for HIV in the developing world, particularly Southern Africa, who were suffering terribly at a time when we in the developed world had drugs that were life-saving and turned around completely the clinical course of AIDS where people could lead an essentially normal life if put on therapy. They didn't have that in the developing world. And President Bush felt very strongly, George W. Bush, that we had a moral responsibility to help people under those circumstances. And we put together the program. And since 2003, when we started it, it has clearly saved between 18 and 20 million lives. So that is unprecedented in any global health program that we put together. And there is a plan to end HIV in the United States by 2030. Do you think that will happen? You know, that is difficult to say. Uh, it, it is not yet at the pace that we want it to be. The plan was to decrease the number of new cases by 75% in five years and by 90% in 10 years. And the program was started in 2020. So we would hope by 2030, we could end it as a pandemic. We're, we're not going to eradicate or eliminate HIV. Just the nature of the infection tells us that's not going to happen. However, we could get it down to a very, very low level. One of the big stumbling blocks against this is that we don't yet have a vaccine, but we can likely get to the level we want by getting people treated who are infected, testing them early, getting them on therapy, and doing what we call pre-exposure prophylaxis, because we have remarkably effective drugs that if given intermittently, we now can do it every couple of months and hopefully every six months, to give it to an uninfected person to prevent them from getting infected. And if a person is already infected, you can treat them with very effective drugs to get the level of virus so low that it would be essentially impossible for them to transmit it to anyone else. So even in the absence of a vaccine, our goal of ending it as a pandemic as we know it we can do that if we continue to push and put resources into that. Well, let's talk about that other virus, which is COVID-19. How did you first hear about that virus and what, what was your reaction? Well, it was the last day of, 19, of, of 2019 and the first couple of days of 2020 when I heard uh, inklings of stories I discussed this with the then CDC director that he had heard from his colleagues in China that there was an unusual pneumonia that was seen in some individuals, which at first was thought to be a virus that did not transmit easily from person to person, but was a virus that jumped species from an animal host to the human. And then as the weeks started to roll out from the early part of January, it became clear that we were dealing with a formidable situation with a virus that was highly transmissible and it was clearly stimulating the Chinese to do things like build an essentially a week 
thousand bed hospitals and then we knew we were in real trouble and then by the time we had the initial cases here it became clear that this was going to be a pandemic because as you know the first cases that were seen we were not quite sure how well the virus was transmitting until we ultimately found out that even people without symptoms were transmitting the virus which made it very, very difficult to trace that because there was a lot of infection undetected in the community. And when we finally found out about that with the explosion of cases in multiple parts of the country, but particularly early on in New York, that got hit very, very badly, uh, we knew we were in trouble. So it was in the very first weeks of January into February and March of 2020. All right, Dr. Fauci, quick pause here, and then we'll be back after the break. Stay with us. We'll continue our conversation with Dr. Anthony Fauci. You're watching Government Matters. Welcome back. We're back with our conversation with Dr. Anthony Fauci. Dr. Fauci, Operation Warp Speed was the government program that developed the COVID-19 vaccines in record time. Will the government be able to do that again next time? Is that the new standard for developing new vaccines? Well, it's going to be part of the standard. One of the things that was highly successful in our ability to get a vaccine out in less than a year that was both safe and highly effective was the investment that was made in basic and clinical biomedical research for decades before COVID came so that we were able to move quickly with new vaccine platforms and new ways of developing vaccines. But you're quite correct that Operation Warp Speed, which was an enormous investment in money to be able to get pharmaceutical companies to de-risk their process, namely to guarantee that we would manufacture and make available vaccine even before we proved that it was safe and effective, which is very risky in a business model, but it was necessary because it dramatically diminished the amount of time it took to get vaccine to people. We will have a similar model if we get another pandemic, which we will. We don't know when that will happen. It could happen next year, 10 years from now, or 50 years from now but we have to be perpetually prepared both from a scientific standpoint and from an implementation standpoint. And Operation Warp Speed was a major historic success from an implementation standpoint. You know, Dr. Fauci, I, I don't need to tell you that you became a hero to one segment of the population. You were vilified by another segment. So how did you deal with that personally? Well, you do, what you do is what I have been doing and continue to do to this day is to focus very intensively on your job and your mission. And my job and my mission is to use our scientific capabilities to safeguard the health and the safety and the welfare of the American public. And since this country is a global leader indirectly, we do that for the world. So I don't get impressed by the idolization of me, and I'm not intimidated by the villainization of me. I focus on what my job is, I know what my job is, and I do it, and I don't get distracted by those other things.
a major source of frustration for a lot of people was uh, the changes and sometimes contradictions in uh, coronavirus guidance. It led to some distrust in public health officials. How do you build that back? And is there something you would have done differently? Well, you know, you talk about what was called changes in guidelines because the evolution of the virus was changing right in front of us. And what we need to do better is to get people to understand that science, by definition, is self-correcting. What you do in one month when you have data and evidence in front of you is to act on the information you have. When you're dealing with a moving target, like the evolution of an unprecedented pandemic, things change from week to week and month to month. And if you're perfectly honest with yourself and others, you will make changes, changes in interpretation of what's going on and changes in associated guidelines and recommendations. And that's what happened. It was merely science getting information that was unfolding in real time in front of us. And understandably, some people may think that's flip-flopping or changing your mind without a good basis. No, it was actually following the science. So we very likely have to do a better job of getting people to understand that it isn't like mathematics when you're dealing, where two plus two equals four in January, in April, and in August. No matter how you look at it, two plus two will always equal four. But when you're dealing with an evolution of an outbreak where things are changing before your very eyes, then you have to realize that things will change, including recommendations and guidelines. And Dr. Fauci, I want to ask you a personal question, which is, why did you choose public service? You could have been a doctor in private practice. You would have made more money, and you would not have had to deal with all the headache. Well, I chose it because I feel very strongly, at least for myself personally, I feel almost an obligation to serve the public. I've learned that from the time I was a child with my parents. I went to an educational institution as a high school student under the Jesuit priests and at a college with a Jesuit education where the theme was always service to others, not making money, not self-aggrandizing, but serving others. And I grew up with that and I feel very strongly with that. And I've done that for my entire professional career and material things like making a lot of money in a practice, not that there's anything wrong with that, that just doesn't appeal to me. What appeals to me is doing things that you know are helping society. So what are you gonna do in retirement, Dr. Fauci? Well, I'm gonna continue along that line only outside of the confines of the government. I would hope that I would be utilizing my 54 years of experience as a scientist in the government, my 38 years of experience of running a major infectious disease institution and the privilege I've had over that time of advising seven presidents of the United States. And I would hope that that experience would be beneficial to people either in an advisory capacity or even more importantly, to perhaps inspire younger people to get involved in science and to get involved in what you mentioned, namely public service. If I can do that, 
I think that would be able to help the younger generation to realize why it's so important to continue to serve the public. All right. Well, Dr. Fauci, that's all the time that we've got. Thank you so much. And thank you for your 54 years of public service. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Thank you for having me. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the latest national defense strategy focuses on deterring China's growing influence. We'll be right back. In late October, the Pentagon released its unclassified version of the annual national defense strategy after months of delay. Jim Mitri is the director of the International Security and Defense Policy Program at the RAND Corporation. Jim, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So there has been some criticism about this uh, strategy that there's nothing new. Do you agree with that? Well, one of the things that is surprising is just how little is new in the strategy. But that's not a bad thing. So the 2022 National Defense Strategy is purposely building off of the 2018 National Defense Strategy and focusing on China in particular as the pacing threat for the Department of Defense. And the reality is, given an organization as large as the Department of Defense, with over 3 million people that are part of it, you know, budget of around $750 billion a year, it takes time to shift that enterprise and to focus on a particular challenge. And so the fact that there's continuity allows the department to continue focus on the key challenge and make a little bit more progress getting after it. Well, that key challenge is China, as you said, and Lloyd Austin talked about that, and this is what he had to say. The PRC is the only competitor out there with both the intent to reshape the international order and increasingly the power to do so. What, did you, what do you make of that, uh, Jim? I think there's a good logical basis for that assertion. And it makes good sense for the department to take the China challenge seriously. So I support it, you know, in, in terms of the focus for the Department of Defense right now. Um, that being said, one of the things the Department of Defense is challenged with is how it's going to get after that problem in a sensible timeline. Uh, the president has talked about this as the decade of concern. And given the emphasis on China in particular, given that there's a hot war right now in Russia, there's just a lot going on. And uh, not just that, there's also the challenges of North Korea, Iran, climate change, pandemics, violent extremist organizations. It's just a difficult time for the department to figure out how it's gonna effectively keep focus on China and get after it in a timeline that we can ensure credible deterrent within this decade of concern. So that's what I was going to ask you, because, you know, the, the strategy um, plans to deter adversaries by modernizing and investing in new technologies. And given that it takes years for those things to deploy currently, is that reasonable? I hope so. Uh, what I'd offer is there's been some progress made to date. So the department has made a big effort over the last few years on trying to work more with the commercial sector to tap into some of the key sources of innovation that are happening there, particularly emerging technologies, and trying to find an application to them in a military context. So the Deputy Secretary of Defense has announced her Raider Fund, for example, which is trying to kickstart that type of activity. But what we're seeing is that the department isn't far, far enough along that journey yet. A lot of companies are still falling prey to what's called the valley of death, 
where you get a good prototype, do some experimentation, but it never quite matures into a full program of record and is embedded into the department's operational approach to the China challenge. So still a lot of work to do, but uh, moving in a positive direction overall. Has the view of the threat Russia poses changed as a result of their invasion of Ukraine? I think so. Uh, that's a pretty significant change in the security environment. It's one thing to it, it's one thing for it to be a possibility, for it to be a concern. It's something quite distinct when that threat actually manifests itself and we have an unprovoked aggression, we have significant humanitarian uh, toll and, and uh, atrocities being committed by the Russians, not to mention now the potential risk of nuclear escalation in this conflict. So the department is taking that seriously. The defense strategy is set up well to be able to address that. So it's not such a wild card that it's shifting what the department's doing in a significant way, but, uh, but it is an important dynamic and rightfully getting a lot of attention and resources. And very quickly, North Korea, Iran, uh, violent extremists, anything new there? There's not a whole lot new in terms of where the defense strategy is on that. Obviously, they're both active. I mean, all, those challenges are always changing and dynamic. And so an important thing for the department to keep its eye on. But I think fundamentally the challenge is how does the department manage those suite of challenges while it's dealing with a hot war on, in Europe and trying to maintain its focus on China? All right. Well, Jim Mitri, nice to talk to you. I guess we'll see how things uh, unfold with the strategy. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people, in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber, and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service? It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers 
as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's going to be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.